Hey everybody, this is Shelly, your mouthy mama, talking trash and truth, doing story time with T3. Now there's been a little change to the story time routine. I know for common sense, I did the full book and I have been putting off doing another full book because it's a lot. It's a lot. So this is the first time I'm changing the format. Hopefully it'll keep... A lot of the older books, they're very hard to read. They're very long and they're very dry. So, y'all used to really enjoy the morning show where I, you know, just talk, go off the cuff, whatever. I'm going to try to do that with books. I'm going to read bits and pieces from books. Like, I'll read a chapter here or a couple paragraphs. And if it strikes me as boring, I'm just going to stop and tell you, yeah, let's not read that part anymore. It's boring. Let's look for something. So it could be a book adventure together because normally when this is the first time you're hearing it, likely the first time I'm looking at it. So without further ado, we're going to get on with it. Let's go. Alrighty, Rue, this is a public domain book. So the copyright has um, expired, I guess. So it's absolutely fine for me to read this. Especially since I'm not reading the whole thing. This one is called Idle Thoughts of an Idle Fellow by Jerome Klapka Jerome. It was published in 1886. He was an English author best known for his humorous travelogue, Three Men in a Boat. Okay. All right. Well, I guess we'll see. It opens with, To the very dear and well-beloved friend of my prosperous and evil days. Oh, that sounds promising. To the friend who, though in the early stages of our acquaintanceship, did oft-time disagree with me, <laughs> has since become to be my very warmest comrade. Ooh, comrade, that's dangerous to say nowadays. Um... To the friend who, however often I may put him out, never upsets me in revenge. To put somebody out is to, like, to inconvenience them or to make them aggravated. Uh, to the friend who, treated with marked coolness by all the female members of my household, oh, that was every male friend I ever knew, and regarded with suspicion by my very dog. Yeah. The dog don't trust somebody. Trust the dog. Nevertheless, seems day by day to be more drawn to me. And in return, to more and more impregnate me with the odor of his friendship. How do you impregnate somebody with the odor of their friendship? Thank you for filling me up with the stinkiness of your friendship. Okay. Weird, but all right. To the friend who never tells me of my faults never wants to borrow money and never talks about himself this person does not exist to the companion of my idle hours the soother of my sorrows the confidant of my joys and hopes my oldest and strongest pipe this little volume is gratefully and affectionately dedicated oh he dedicated it to his pipe I dedicate this to my bong. Thank you, bong. 
we be bong together. In his preface, he said, one or two friends to whom I showed this, these papers have observed that they were not half bad, and some of my relatives have promised to buy the book if it ever came out. I feel I have no right to delay its issue any longer. But for this, as one might say, public demand, I perhaps should not have ventured to offer these mere quote-unquote, idle thoughts of mine as mental food for the English-speaking peoples of the earth. What readers ask nowadays in a book is that it should improve, instruct, and elevate. This book wouldn't elevate a cow. Oh, good, because we have probably quite a few listening. Uh, I cannot conscientiously recommend it for any useful purpose whatsoever. It's going to make you laugh, I hope. All I can suggest is that when you get tired of reading the best hundred books, you may take this up for half an hour. It'll be a nice change. <laughs> I like that. So on being idle, now this is a subject on which I flatter myself that I am really au fait. Okay. The gentleman who, when I was young, bathed me at Wisdom's font for nine guineas a term, no extras. This is mainly, I guess, his tutor, used to say he never knew a boy who could do less work in more time. And I remember my poor grandmother once incidentally observing in the course of an instruction upon the use of the prayer book. So his grandmother was trying to teach him how to use the, the prayer book. That it was highly improbable that I should ever do much that I ought not to do but that she felt utterly convinced beyond a doubt that I should leave undone pretty well everything that I ought to do. Okay, so he's not going to do the stuff that um, he shouldn't do, but he's also not going to do the stuff that he should do. That's nice. All right. So let's... <laughs> he says, twice a day I should go down in a bath chair to the colonnade to drink the waters. Oh, those waters. I knew nothing about them then and it was and was rather taken by the idea. Drinking the waters sounded fashionable and very queen anified. And I thought I should like them, but ugh, after the first three or four mornings. <laughs> Sam Weller's description of them as having a taste of warm flat iron. <laughs> conveys only a faint idea of what their hideous nauseousness was like. If anything, they could make a sick man get well quickly. It would be with the knowledge that he has to drink a glass full of this every day until he recovered. I drank them neat for six consecutive days, and they nearly killed me. But after that, I adopted a plan of taking a stiff glass of brandy and water immediately on top of them and found much relief thereby. So the healthy waters didn't really help him. But once he added, you know, brandy to it, they did a wonder. I like him already. <laughs> I think myself, I'm skipping around. I think myself that I could keep out of bed all right once I got out. It's the wrenching away of the head from the pillow that I find so hard. And no amount of overnight determination makes it easier. 
I say to myself after having wasted the entire evening, well, I won't do any more work tonight. I'll get up early tomorrow morning. And I'm thoroughly resolved to do so at that time. It's in the morning, however, that I feel a lot less enthusiastic about the idea and reflect that it would have been better if I had stopped up last night. <laughs> and then there's the trouble of dressing, and the more one thinks about that, the more one wants to put it off. I get that. You ever get that? You lay in that bed, and it's so comfortable, and you're like, oh, if I just lay here, I don't have to do anything for like a long time. But if I get up, that's, ugh, I'm going to want to get coffee. I'm going to have to go to the bathroom, take a shower, brush my teeth, do my hair, do my makeup, get dressed. And then I'll be all ready to go out. There's no point in me staying home all day if that's how I'm looking. So I might as well go out and do my shopping. And it just, it becomes like this whole list of things that you have to do. And, oh, screw that. It's a strange thing, this bed, this mimic grave, where we stretch our tired limbs and sink away so quietly into silence and rest. Quote, oh bed, oh bed, delicious bed, that heaven on earth to the weary head, unquote. As sang poor Hood, you are a kind old nurse to us fretful boys and girls, clever and foolish, naughty and good, you take us all in your motherly lap, and hush our wayward crying, the strong man full of care, the sick man full of pain, the little maiden sobbing for her faithless lover. Like children, we lay on our aching heads on your white bosom, and you gently soothe us off to bye-bye. Never thought about that. The way we lay. Maybe everybody who lays on their stomach is like craving like, a mother's love. Who knows? Uh, our trouble is sore indeed when you turn away and will not comfort us. How long the dawn seems coming when we cannot sleep. Oh, those hideous nights when we toss and turn in fever and pain. When we lie like living men among the dead, staring out into the dark hours that drift so slowly between us and the light. And oh, those still more hideous nights when we sit by another in pain, when the low fire startles us every now and then with the falling cinder, and the click of the clock seems a hammer beating out the life that we're watching. Yeah, I've done that. We've all done that, I'm pretty sure, especially if you have kids. There's no way anybody with kids hasn't sat by their bedside at least once. And just, just listened. And just prayed for every breath. <clears throat> We've all sat watch for people. <clears throat> Let's say next part on being in love. You've been in love, of course. If not, you've got it to come. Love is like the measles. We all have to go through it. Oh, that's, that's not good. We don't all get the measles anymore. Uh, also like the measles, we take it only once. Again, not true. <laughs> One never need be afraid of catching it a second time. That's not true. The man who has had it 
can go to the most dangerous places and play the most foolhardy tricks with perfect safety. He can picnic in shady woods, ramble through leafy aisles, leafy aisles, come on, and linger on mossy seats to watch the sunset. He fears a quiet country house no more than he would his own club. He could join a family party to go down to the Rhine. He can, to see the last of a friend, venture into the very jaws of the marriage ceremony itself. He can keep his head through a whirl of, ravish, of a ravishing waltz and rest afterward in a dark conservatory, catching nothing more lasting than a cold. Okay. He can brave a moonlight walk, adorn a down. He can brave a midnight walk down sweet scented lanes or a twilight pull among the somber rushes. Weird. That's a weird way to say. He can go for a moonlight stroll through the, you know, sweetly scented trees or whatever. The hell. He clasps white hands in his, but no electric Lulu-like force holds him bound in their dainty pressure. No, we never sicken with love twice. Cupid spends no second arrow on the same heart. Love's handmaidens are our long-lost friends. Respect, admiration, affection. Our doors may always be left open for, but their great celestial master in his royal progress pays but one visit and departs. We like, we cherish, we are very, very fond of, but we never love again. A man's heart is a firework that once in its time flashes heavenward. Meteor-like, it blazes for a moment and lights with its glory the whole world beneath. Then the night of our sordid, commonplace life closes in around it, and the burned-out case, fallen back to earth, lies useless and uncared for, slowly smoldering into ashes. Once, breaking loose from our prison bonds, we dare, as mighty old Prometheus dared, to scale the Olympian mount and snatch from Phoebus's chariot the fire of the gods. Happy those who, hastening down ere again it dies out, can kindle their earthly altars at its flame. Oh, Jesus, the way this guy talks. Love is too pure a light to burn long among the noisome gases that we breathe, but before it is choked out, we may use it as a torch to ignite the cozy fire of affection. So this guy thinks that you only love once, and then once you're done loving, you could be affectionate, but that's about it. Affection will burn cheerily when the white flame of love is flickered out. Affection is a fire that can be fed from day to day and be piled up ever higher as the wintry years draw nigh. Old men and women can sit by it with their thin hands clasped. Huh. I don't know if I totally agree with that. Oh, well. So... Uh, Let us heap the coals of kindness upon that fire. Throw on your pleasant words, your gentle pressures of the hand, your thoughtful and unselfish deeds. Fan it with good humor, patience, and forbearance. You can let the wind blow and the rain fall unheeded, 
for your hearth will be warm and bright, and the faces round it will make sunshine in spite of the clouds without. I am afraid you expect too much from love. You think there is enough of your little hearts to feed this fierce, devouring passion for all your long lives. Ah, young folk, don't rely too much on that unsteady flicker. It will dwindle and dwindle as the months roll on, and there's no replenishing the fuel. You will watch it die out in anger and disappointment. To each, it will seem that it is the other who is growing colder. He sees with bitterness that she no longer runs to the gate to meet him, all smiles and blushes. And when he has a cough, now she doesn't begin to cry and putting her arms around his neck, say that she cannot live without him. The most she will probably do is suggest a lozenge. And even that in a tone implying that it, it's the noise more than anything that she's anxious to get rid of. That's... Mm. And poor her... She, too, sheds silent tears, for he has given up carrying her old handkerchief on the inside pocket of his waistcoat. Oh, Jesus. Both are astonished at the falling off in the other one, but neither sees their own change. If they did, they would not suffer as they do. They would look for the cause in the right quarter, in the littleness of poor human nature, join hands over their common failing and start building their house anew on a more earthly and enduring foundation. But we're so blind to our own shortcomings, so wide awake to those of others. Everything that happens to us is always the other person's fault. She would have gone on loving him forever and ever and ever if only he would not have grown so strange and different. He would have adored her through eternity if she had not remained if she had only remained the same as when he first adored her. It is a cheerless hour for them both when the lamp of love has... Lamp of love. Lamp of love has gone out. And the fire of affection is not yet lit. And you have to grope about in the cold, which could be fun, raw dawn of life to kindle it. God grant it catches light before the day is too far spent. Many sit shivering by the dead coals till night comes. Huh. All right, so what he's saying is, like, in the beginning, you feel all passionate and whatever. You know, and that's going to die off. So, you know, like... Oh, God. How beautiful she was. How wondrously beautiful. It was as if some angel was entering the room and all else became plain and earthly. She was too sacred to be touched. It seemed almost presumption to gaze at her. She would as soon as thought of kiss you would have as soon you would as soon have thought I can't word today. Thought of kissing her as of singing comic songs in a cathedral. Oh. It was desecration enough to kneel and timidly raise the gracious little hand to your lips. This is how he, like, how he viewed someone that he liked when he met them. When he was younger, he says, ah, those foolish days, those foolish days when we were unselfish and pure-minded. Those foolish days when our simple hearts were full of truth and faith and reverence. I am full of irreverence. Remember that. 
Ah, those foolish days of noble longings and noble strivings. <clears throat> and oh, these wise, clever days when we know that money is the only prize worth striving for. <laughs> when we believe in nothing else but meanness and lies. When we care for no living creature but ourselves. I know a lot of you. Ooh, let's see. The next chapter is on being in the blues. I can enjoy feeling melancholia, which for all of those, melancholy. I can't, I told you I can't read. Eh, no, I don't want to play. Start over. On being in the blues, I can enjoy feeling melancholy. And there's a good deal of satisfaction about being thoroughly miserable. Meh. But nobody likes a fit of the blues. It's all the same. Nevertheless, everybody has them. Notwithstanding which, nobody can tell why. There's no accounting for them. You're just as likely to have one on the day after you have come into a large fortune as on the day that you left your new silk umbrella on the train. Uh, its effect upon you is somewhat similar to what probably be produced by a combined attack of toothache, indigestion, and cold in the head. You become stupid. <laughs> Is that what's wrong with the world? They're melancholic. They're, they have the blues. You become stupid, restless, and irritable. Rude to strangers. Dangerous toward your friends. Clumsy, maudlin, quarrelsome. A nuisance to yourself and everyone about you. Yeah, I know a lot of people have the blues. While it's on, while it is on you, while it is on. Okay. People don't like commas or sentence structure. While it is on, you can do nothing and think of nothing. There's no comma or anything there so that just was one sentence and it was weird though feeling at the time bound to do something okay so while it is on you could do nothing and think of nothing though feeling at the time bound to do something you can't sit still so put on your hat and go for a walk but before you get to the corner of the street you wish you hadn't come out and you turn back you open a book and try to read but you find shakespeare trite and commonplace dickens is dull and prosy zachary is a bore and Carlisle is too sentimental, too sentimental. You throw the book aside and you call the author names. Then you shoo the cat out of the room and you kick the door closed after her. You think that you'll write your letters, but you're sticking to dear auntie. I find I have five minutes to spare and so hasten to write to you for a quarter of an hour without being able to think of another goddamn sentence because you tumble the paper into the desk, fling the wet pen down on the tablecloth and start up with the resolution that you're going to see the Thompsons. This sounds like somebody with ADHD, not just like the blues. So while pulling on your gloves, oh, they all wore gloves. However, it occurs to you that the Thompsons are idiots and that they've never had supper and you'll be expected to jump the baby. You curse the Thompsons and decide not to go. Okay. I mean, how many of you have made plans with your friends and you love your friends? You love doing stuff with them. But you're sitting there going, somebody cancel, somebody cancel, somebody cancel. Let there be some kind of like emergency. Yes, we don't have to go. 
and you celebrate and then you wind up spending the whole night home by yourself sitting there crying because you're like oh i got nothing to do nobody loves me meanwhile you just canceled all your plans ridiculous okay um but this by this time you feel completely crushed you bury your face in your hands and you think you'd like to die and go to heaven and you picture yourself on your own sick bed with all your friends and relatives standing around you weeping you bless them all especially the young and pretty ones they'll value you when you're gone so you say to yourself and learn too late what they have lost and you bitterly contract their presumed regard to you than with their decided want of veneration now, okay? These reflections make you feel a little more cheerful, but only for a brief period. For the next moment, you think, what a fool you must be to imagine for an instant that anyone would be sorry at anything that might happen to you. Who would care two figs? Whatever precise amount of care two figs may represent. Whether you're blown up or hung up or married or drowned, nobody cares about you. You've never been properly appreciated, never met with their, you know, never met with your due desserts in any one particular instance. You review the whole of your past life and it's painfully apparent that you've been ill-used from your cradle. Who hasn't done that? Apparently that's supposed to be funny, but I do that all the time. That's what keeps me up at night. Sitting there thinking of bad shit. Not bad shit other people have done. Bad shit that I've done. Quite the list. Uh, half an hour's indulgence in these considerations works you up into a state of savage fury against everybody and everything, especially yourself. With anatomical reasons alone prevent your kicking. Okay. Bedtime at last comes to save you from doing something stupid. And you spring upstairs, throw off your clothes, leaving them strewn all over the room, blow out the candle, jump into bed, as if you'd back to yourself for a heavy wager to do the whole thing against time. There you toss and tumble about for a couple of hours or so, varying the monotony by occasionally jerking the clothes off and getting out and putting them on again. At length, you drop into an uneasy and fitful slumber, have bad dreams, and wake up late the next morning. At least this is all we poor single people can do under the circumstances. Married men bully their wives, grumble at the dinner, and insist on the children all going to bed. All of which, creating as it does, a good deal of disturbance in the house. It must be a great relief to the feelings of a man in the blues. Rouse being the only form of amusement in which he could take any interest. Nice. The symptoms of the infirmity are much the same in every case, but the affliction itself is variously termed. The poet says that a feeling of sadness comes over him. Ari refers to the heavings of his wayward heart by confiding to Jimmy that he has got the blooming hump. I don't know what that is. Your sister doesn't know what is the matter with her tonight. She feels out of sorts altogether and hopes nothing is going to happen. The everyday young man is so awfully glad to meet you, old fellow, for he does feel so jolly miserable this evening. As for myself, I generally say that I have a strange, unsettling feeling tonight, 
And I think I'll go out. By the way, it never does come except in the evening. In the sometime, when the world is bounding forward full of life, we cannot stay to sigh and sulk. The roar of the working day drowns out the voices to the elfin sprites that are ever singing their low-toned misery in our ears. <clears throat> in the days we're angry, disappointed, or indignant, but never in the blues, and never melancholy. When things go wrong at 10 o'clock in the morning, we, or rather you, swear and knock the furniture about, but if the misfortune comes at 10 p.m., we read poetry and sit in the dark and think what a hollow world this must be. But as a rule, it's not trouble that makes us melancholy. The actuality is too stern a thing for sentiment. We lingered to weep over a picture, but from the original, we should quickly turn our eyes away. There is no pathos in real misery. No luxury in real grief. We don't toy with sharp swords or hug a gnawing fox to our breast for choice. When a man or woman loves to brood over a sorrow and takes care to keep it green in their memory, he may be sure that it is no longer a pain to them. However, they may have suffered from it at first. The recollection has become by then a pleasure. Many dear old ladies who daily look at their tiny shoes lying in lavender-scented drawers and weep as they think of the tiny feet whose toddling march is done and sweet-faced young ones who place each night beneath their pillows some lock that once curled on a boyish head that the salt waves have kissed to death will call me a nasty, cynical brute and say I'm talking nonsense. But I believe, nevertheless, that they will ask themselves truthfully whether they find it unpleasant to dwell thus on their sorrow, they will be compelled to answer no. Tears are as sweet as laughter to some natures. The proverbial Englishman, we know from old chronicler Froissart, takes his pleasures sadly, and the English woman goes a step further and takes her pleasures in sadness itself. Nice. Nice. But he said, ah, you know, whatever. We enjoy our misery. It's fine. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. The next chapter is on vanity and vanities. Okay. All is vanity in everybody's vein. Women are terribly vain. So are men. More so, if possible. So are children. Particularly children. One of them at this very moment is hammering upon my legs. She wants to know what I think of her new shoes. Candidly, I don't think much of them. They lack symmetry and curve and possess an indescribable appearance of lumpiness. I believe, too, that they've put them on the wrong feet. But I don't say this. It's not criticism, but flattery that she wants. And I gush over them with what I feel to myself to be degrading effusiveness. Nothing else would satisfy this self-opinionated cherub. I tried the conscientious friend Dodge with her on one occasion, but it was not a success. She had requested my judgment upon the general conduct and behavior, and the exact case submitted being, What will think of me? Will please with me? And I thought it was a good opportunity to make a few salutary remarks upon her late moral career and said no i'm not pleased with you and i recalled to her mind 
the events of that very morning, and I put it out to her how she, as a Christian child, could expect a wise and good uncle to be satisfied with the carryings-on of an infant who that very day had roused the entire house at 5 a.m., upset a water jug, and tumbled downstairs after it, was, after it at 7, had endeavored to put the cat in a bath at 8, and sat on her own father's hat at 9.35. And what did she do? Was she grateful to me for my plain speaking? Did she ponder upon my words and determine to profit by them and to lead from that hour a better and nobler life? Oh, she howled. And that done, she became abusive. She said, oh, naughty, oh, naughty, bad unky, oh, bad man. Tell me Mar. Me tell Mar. And she did too. And since then, my views have been cold. For I have kept my real sentiments more to myself, like preferring to express unbounded admiration of this young person's actions, irrespective of their actual merits. And she nods her head approvingly and trots off to advertise my opinion to the rest of the household. She appears to employ it as a sort of testimonial for mercenary purposes, for a subsequently hear distant sound of, Unky says me do a girl. Me that to have two binkies. Biscuits. Okay. And there she goes now gazing rapturously at her own toes and murmuring pity. Two foot ten of conceit and vanity to say nothing of other wickedness. <laughs> They're all alike. I remember sitting in a garden one sunny afternoon in the suburbs of London. Suddenly I heard a shrill treble voice calling from a top story window to some unseen being. Presumably in one of the other gardens. Gamma, me good boy. Me very good boy, Gamma. Me got Bob's Nicky Bucky's. I don't know what that means. Well, even animals are vain. I saw a great Newfoundland dog the other day sitting in front of a mirror at the entrance to a shop in Regent's Circus and examining himself with an amount of smug satisfaction that I have never seen equaled elsewhere outside a vestry meeting. <laughs> So basically, like, everybody is just, you know, stuck up, according to him. I was at a farmhouse once when some high holiday was being celebrated. Oh, good God. I don't remember what the occasion was, but it was something festive, a May Day or a Quarter Day or something of that sort. And they put a garland of flowers around the head of one of the cows. Well, that absurdity quadrupled. And went, as it went about all day, as perky as a schoolgirl in a new frock. And when they took the wreath off, she became, became quite sulky. And they had to put it back on again before she would stand still to be milked. This is not a Percy anecdote. It's the plain sober truth. As for cats, they nearly equal human beings for vanity. I think they far surpass us, but whatever. I've known a cat get up and walk out of a room on a remark derogatory to her species being made by a visitor. Well, a, ne a neatly turned compliment. We'll set them purring for an hour. I do like cats. They are so unconsciously amusing. There is such a comic dignity about them, such a, how dare you, go away, don't touch me, sort of an air. Now, there's nothing ha haughty about a dog. They're hell, fellow, well met with every Tom, Dick, and Harry that they come across. And when I meet a dog of my acquaintance, I slap his head, call him an abricious epitaphs, and 
roll him over on his back, and there he lies, gaping at me, and doesn't mind it a bit. Fancy carrying on like that with a cat. I do that with my cat all the time, both of them. Why, she would never speak to you again as long as you live. No, when you want to win the approbation of a cat, you must mind what you're about and work your way carefully. If you don't know the cat, you'd best begin by saying, poor pussy. After which, add diddums in a tone of soothing sympathy. Oh, diddums. You don't know what you mean any more than the cat does, but the sentiment seems to imply a proper spirit on your part and generally touches your feelings and her feelings to such an extent that if you're of good manners and passable appearance, she will stick her back up and rub her nose against you. Matters have reached this stage, you may venture to chuck her under the chin and tickle the side of her head, and the intelligent, intelligent creature will then stick her claws into your legs and all his friendship and affection, and so sweetly expressed in those beautiful lines, I love little pussy. Her coat is so warm. And if I don't tease her, she'll do me no harm. Oh my God, I know this. This is the poem that I read to you guys that was in the nursery shit thing. For all my, oh my God. Okay, so I love little pussy. Her coat is so warm. If I don't tease her, she'll do me no harm. So I'll stroke her and pat her and feed her with food and pissy. And pussy, and pussy will love me because I am good. The last two lines of the stanza give us a pretty true insight into pussy's notions of human goodness. It's evident that in her opinion, goodness consists of stroking her, her, patting her, and feeding her with food. I fear this narrow-minded view of virtue, though, is not confined to pussies. We are all inclined to adopt a similar standard of merit in our estimate of other people. A good man is a man who is good to us, and a bad man is a man who doesn't do what we want him to. The truth is, we each of us have an inborn conviction that the whole world, with everybody and everything in it, was created as sort of a necessary appendage to ourselves. Our fellow men and women were made to admire us and to minister to our various requirements. You and I, dear reader, are each the center of the universe in our respective opinions. You, as I understand it, were brought into being by a considerate providence in order that you might read and pay me for what I write, while I, in your opinion, am an article sent to the world to write something for you to read. The stars, as they term the myriad under the words, under, wait, as they term the myriad other worlds that are rushing down beside us through an eternal silence, uh, were put into the heavens to make the sky look interesting for us at night. Oh, okay. And the moon with its dark mysteries and ever-hidden face is an arrangement for us to flirt under. I guess, yeah. Tis vanity that makes the world go round. I don't believe any man ever existed without vanity. And if he did, he would be an extremely uncomfortable person to have anything to do with. Oh, I totally get that. Angels may be a very excellent sort of folk in their way, but we poor mortals in our present state would probably find them precious slow company. Ooh, okay, what's the next one? Let's see. On getting on in the world. Not exactly the sort of thing for an idle fellow to think about, is it? But outsiders, you know, 
often see most of the game. And sitting in my arbor by the wayside, smoking my hookah of contentment, and eating the sweet lotus leaves of indolence, I can look out musingly upon the whirling throng that rolls and tumbles past me on the great high road of life. That was like a lot. Okay. Hang on a second. <clears throat> I don't know. I lost my, my thingamajigger. Where is it? Oh, there we go. Okay. My timer. I didn't know how much longer I had. All right, so never-ending is the wild procession. Day and night, you can hear the quick tramp of the myriad feet, some running, some walking, some halting and lame, but all hastening, all eager in the feverish race, all straining life and limb and heart and soul to reach the ever-receding horizon of success. In other words, everybody's chasing that damn carrot on a stick, right? What we're doing. Marking them as they surge along, men and women, old and young, gentle and simple, fair and rich, oh, fair and foul, rich and poor, merry and sad, all hurrying, bustling, scrambling. The strong pushing aside the weak, the cunning creeping past the foolish, those behind elbowing those before, those in front kicking as they run at those behind. Look close and see the flitting show. Here's an old man panting for breath, and there's a timid maiden driven by a hard and sharp-faced matron. There's a studious youth reading How to Get On in the World, and letting everybody pass him as he stumbles along with his eyes on his books. There's a bored-looking man with a fashionably-dressed woman jogging at his elbow. There's a boy gazing wistfully back at the sunny villages he will never again see. Here, with a firm and easy step, strides a broad-shouldered man, and here, with stealthy tread, a thin-faced, stooping fellow dodges and shuffles upon his way here, with the gaze always fixedly locked on the ground, and an artful rogue carefully works his way from side to side of the road and thinks he's going forward. But here is a youth with a noble face, standing, hesitating, as he looks from the distant goal to the mud beneath his feet. Everybody comes in looking for something. Everybody, court a mistress, she denies you. Let her alone and she will court you. Puts the world in a nutshell. A woman never thoroughly cares for her lover until he has ceased to care for her. And it is not until you have snapped your fingers in fortune's face and turned on your heel that she begins to smile upon you. But by that time, you do not much care whether she smiles or frowns. Why could she have not smiled when her smiles would have filled you with ecstasy? Everything comes too late in this world. Some people say that it is quite right and proper that it should be so, and that it proves ambition is wicked. Bosh. Good people are altogether wrong. And they always are, in my opinion. We never agree on any single point. What would the world do without ambitious people, I should like to know? Why, it would be as flabby as a Norfolk dumpling. Ambitious people are the leaven which raises it into a wholesome bread. Without ambitious people, the world would never get up. There are busybodies who are about early in the morning hammering, shouting, and rattling the fire irons and rending it 
generally impossible for the rest of the house to remain in bed. Wrong to be ambitious, forsooth. <laughs> the men wrong who, when with bent back and sweating brow, cut the smooth road over which humanity marches forward from generation to generation. Men wrong for using the talents that their master has entrusted to them for toiling away while others play. Of course, they're seeking their reward. Man is not given that godlike unselfishness that thinks only of others' good. But in working for themselves, they're working for us all. We're so bound together that no man can labor for himself alone. Each blow he strikes and on his own behalf helps to mold the universe. The stream is struggling onward towards the mill wheel. The coral insect fashioning its tiny cell joins continents to one another. The ambitious man building a pedestal for himself leaves a monument to posterity. Alexander the Great and Caesar fought for their own ends, but in doing so, they put a belt of civilization halfway around the world. Stephenson, to win a fortune, invented the steam engine, and Shakespeare wrote his plays in order to keep a comfortable home for Mrs. Shakespeare and the little Shakespeare. Contented, unambitious people are all very well in their way. They form a neat, useful background for great portraits to be painted against, and they make a respectable, if not particularly intelligent, audience for the active spirits of the age to play before. I have not a word to say against contented people so long as they keep quiet. But do not, for goodness sake, let them go strutting about as they are so fond of doing, crying out that they are the true models for the whole species. While they're the deadheads, the drones in the great hive, the street crowds that lounge about, gaping at those who are working. And let them not imagine either, as they are also so fond of doing, that they're very wise and philosophical and that it is a very artful thing to be contented. It may be true that a contented mind is happy anywhere, but so is a Jerusalem pony. And the consequence is that both are put anywhere and are treated anyhow. Oh, you need not bother about him, is said, is what is said. He is very contented as he is, and it would be a pity to disturb him. And so your contented party is passed over, and the discontented man gets his place. <laughs> if you're foolish enough to be contented, don't show it. But grumble with the rest, and if you could do a little, and if you can do with a little, ask for a great deal. So if you get a little bit of contentment, ask for a huge amount of contentment, I guess. Because if you don't, you won't get any. In this world, it is necessary to adopt the principle pursued by the plaintiff in an action for damages, and to demand ten times more than you are ready to accept. If you can feel satisfied with a hundred, begin by insisting on a thousand. And if you start by suggesting a hundred, you'll only get ten. Oh, that actually makes so much sense. It really does. Ah, oh, all right, what's next? What's the next? The rapture of pursuing is the prize the vanquished gains. 
uh, weather. Now we're going to skip that one. On cats and dogs. But I think we did this already. We touched on it. Yeah, no, I don't feel like doing cats and dogs today. Let's see what else. Because I'm only halfway through the book, and this is going to be the last one I do for today. Oh, here we go. On being shy. All great literary men are shy. I am myself, though I am told it is hardly noticeable. <laughs> I get told the same thing. I'm glad it is not. It used to be extremely prominent at one time, and it was the cause of much misery to myself and discomfort to everyone about me. My lady friends especially complained most bitterly about it. Shy man's lot is not a happy one. The men dislike him, the women despise him, and he dislikes and despises himself. Use brings him no relief, and there is no cure for him except time though I once came across a delicious recipe for overcoming the misfortune. It appeared among the answers to correspondence in a small weekly journal and ran as follows, and I have never forgotten it. Adopt an easy and pleasing manner, especially toward ladies. Poor wretch, I can imagine the grin with which she must have read that advice. Adopt an easy and pleasing manner, especially towards lady forsooth. He likes that word. Don't you adopt anything of the kind, my dear young shy friend. Your attempt to put on any other disposition other than your own will infallibly result in your becoming ridiculously gushing and offensively familiar. Be your own natural self, and then you'll only be thought of as surly and stupid. The shy man does not have some slight revenge um, upon society for the torture it inflicts upon him now he is able to a certain extent to communicate his misery he frightens other people as much as they frighten him he acts like a damp dampener upon the whole room and the most jovial spirits become in his presence depressed and nervous this is a good deal brought about by misunderstanding so this is a good deal brought about by misunderstanding Many people mistake the shy man's timidity for overbearing arrogance and are awed and insulted by it. His awkwardness is resented as insolent carelessness, and when terror-stricken at the first word addressed to him, the blood rushes to his head, the power of speech completely fails him, and he is regarded as an awful example of the evil effects of giving way to passion. But, indeed, to be misunderstood is the shy man's fate on every occasion. And whatever impression he endeavors to create, he is sure to convey its opposite. When he makes a joke, it is looked upon as a pretended relation of fact, and his want of veracity much condemned. His sarcasm is accepted as his literal opinion, and gains for him the reputation of being an ass, while if, on the other hand, Wishing to ingratiate himself, he ventures upon a little bit of flattery, and it is taken for satire, and he is hated ever afterward. So in other words, he's always misinterpreted, no matter what. Just no matter what he says, no matter what he does, he's just wrong. Uh, these and the rest of a shy man's troubles are always very amusing to other people. Sure are. Sure are. And have afforded material for comic writing from time immemorial. 
But if we look a little deeper, we shall find there is a pathetic, one might almost say a tragic, side to the picture. A shy man means a lonely man. A man cut off from all companionship, all sociability. He moves about the world, but does not mix with it. Between him and his fellow men, there runs ever an impassable barrier, a strong, invisible wall that, trying in vain to scale, he but bruises himself against. He sees the pleasant faces and hears the pleasant voices on the other side, but he cannot stretch his hand across to grasp another hand. He stands watching the merry groups, and he longs to speak and to claim kindred with them. But they pass him by, chatting gaily to one another, and he cannot stay them. He tries to reach them, but his prison walls move with him and hem him in on every side. In the busy street, in the crowded room, in the grind of work, in the whirl of pleasure, amid the many and amid the few, wherever man congregate together, wherever the music of human speech is heard and human thought is flashed from human eyes, there, shunned and solitary, the shy man, like a leper, stands apart. His soul is full of love and longing but the world knows it not. The iron mask of shyness is riveted before his face, and the man beneath is never seen. Genial words and hearty grievings are ever rising to his lips, but they die away in unheard whispers behind the steel clamps. His heart aches for the weary brother, but his sympathy is dumb. Contempt and indignation against wrong choke up his throat, and finding no safety valve whence in passionate utterance they may burst forth, they only turn in again and harm him. All the hate and scorn and love of a deep nature, such as the shy man, is ever cursed by fester and corrupt within. Instead of spending themselves abroad and sour him into a misanthrope and cynic. So the things that would help him, the things that would make others feel best, his intentions and his desires inside never come forward because he's too shy. And they turn him into a crank, basically. Yes, shy men, like ugly women, have a bad time of it in this world to go through which <laughs> with any comfort needs the hide of a rhinoceros thick skin is indeed our moral clothes and without it we are not fit to be seen about in civilized society a poor gasping blushing creature with trembling knees and twitching hands is a painful sight to everyone and if it cannot cure itself, the sooner it goes and hangs itself, the better. Oh, that's terrible. This desire can be cured for the comfort of the shy. I can assure them that from personal experience, I do not like speaking about it myself, but it has been noticed that in the cause of humanity, I on occasion will do so and will confess that, confess that at one time I was, as the young man in the 
Babella says, the shyest of the shy. And whenever I was introduced to any pretty maid, my knees, they knocked together just as if I were afraid. Now I would, nay have, on this very day before yesterday I did the deed. Alone and entirely by myself, as the schoolboy said in translating the Bellum Gallicum, did I beard a railway refreshment room young lady in her own lair? I rebuked her in terms of mingled bitterness and sorrow for her callousness and want of condescension. I insisted, courteously but firmly, on being accorded that deference and attention that was the right of the traveling Brighton. And at the end, I looked her full in the face. Need I say more? True, immediately after doing so, I left the room with what may have possibly appeared to be a precipitation and without waiting for any refreshment, but that was because I had just changed my mind, not because I was frightened, you understand. Uh-huh, sure. One, consola one consolation that shy folk can take into themselves is that shyness is certainly no sign of stupidity. It is easy enough for bullheaded clowns to sneer at nerves, but the highest natures are not necessarily those containing the greatest amount of moral brass. The horse is not an inferior animal to the cock sparrow, nor the deer to the forest and to the pig. To the deer, wait, nor the deer of the forest to the pig. Shyness simply means extreme sensibility. And has nothing whatsoever to do with self-consciousness or with conceit. Though its relation to both is continually insisted upon by the whole parrot school of philosophy. Conceit, indeed, is the quickest cure for it. When it once begins to dawn upon you that you are a good deal cleverer than anyone else in the world, bashfulness becomes shocked and leaves you. When you can look round a room full of people and think that each one is a mere child in intellect compared with yourself, you will feel no more shy of them than you would of a select company of magpies or orangutans. Wow. Conceit is the finest armor that a man can wear. Upon its smooth, impenetrable surface, the puny dagger thrusts of spite and envy glance harmlessly aside. Without that breastplate, the sword of talent cannot force its way through the blade through the battle of life, for blows have to be borne as well as dealt. I do not, of course, speak of the conceit that displays itself in an elevated nose and a falsetto voice. Quite right, quite right. That is not real conceit. That is only playing at being conceited. Like children play at being kings and queens without going, by going strutting about with feathers and long train. Genuine conceit does not make a man objectionable. On the contrary, it tends to make him genial, kind-hearted, and simple. He has no need of affectation. He is far too well satisfied with his own character. And his pride is too deep-seated to appear at all on the outside. Careless alike of praise or blame, he can afford to be truthful. Too far in fancy above the rest of mankind to trouble about their petty distinctions. He is equally at home with the Duke or a costermonger. Hmm. The shy man, on the other hand, is humble, 
modest of his own judgment and over-anxious concerning that of others. But this is the case of a young man, and it's surely right enough. His character is unformed and slowly evolving itself out of the chaos of doubt and disbelief. Before the growing insight and experience the diffidence recedes, a man rarely carries his shyness past the hobblehoy period. Even if his own inward strength does not throw it off, the rubbings of the world generally smooth it down. You scarcely ever meet a really shy man, except in novels or on the stage, where, by the by, he is much admired, especially by the women. There, in that supernatural land, he appears as a fair-haired, saint-like young man. No respectable audience would believe in one without the other. I knew an actor who mislaid his wig once and had to rush on to play the hero in his own hair, which was jet black, and the gallery howled at all his noble sentiments under the impression that he was the villain. He, the shy and young man, loves the heroine, oh, so devotedly, but only in asides, for he dare not tell her of it. And he is so noble and unselfish and speaks in such low voice and is so good to his mother. And the bad people in the play, they laugh at him and jeer at him, but he takes it all so gently. And in the end, it transpires that he is such a clever man, though nobody knew it. And then the heroine tells him she loves him. And he's so surprised and oh so happy and everyone loves him and asks him to forgive them, which he does in a few well-chosen and sarcastic words and blesses them as he seems to have generally such a good time of it and that all the young fellows who are not so shy long to be shy now. But the real shy man knows better. He knows that it is not quite so pleasant in reality. He is not quite so interesting there as in the fiction. He's a little more clumsy and stupid and a little less devoted and gentle. And his hair is much darker, which, taken all together, considerably alters the aspects of the case. So basically they're saying if you look light and airy and whatever, you can be shy and be the heroine or the hero. But if you're like darkish in appearance, like dark hair or whatever, they just assume that you're a bad guy. That actually makes so much sense. Oh, fun on babies. Oh, yes, I do. I know a lot about them. I was once one myself, though not long. Though not long, not as long as my clothes. They were very long, I recollect, and always in my way when I wanted to kick. Why do babies have such yards of unnecessary clothing? It's not a riddle. I really want to know. I never could understand it. Is it that parents are ashamed of the size of the child and wish to make believe that they're longer than they actually are? I asked the nurse once why it was, and she said, Lord, sir, they always have long clothes, bless their little hearts. And when I explained that her answer, although doing credit to her feelings, hardly disposed of my difficulty, she replied, Lord, sir, you wouldn't have them in short clothes, poor little dears? And she said it in a tone that seemed to imply I had, I had suggested some unmanly outrage. Since then, I have felt shy at making inquiries on the subject. And the reason, if the reason there be, is still a mystery to me. But indeed, putting them in any clothes at all seems absurd to my mind. 
Goodness knows there's enough of dressing and undressing to be gone through in life without beginning it before we need. And one would think that people who live in bed might at all events be spared the torture. Why wake the poor little wretches up in the morning to take one lot of clothes off, fix another lot on, put them to bed again, and then at night haul them all, all out once more merely to change everything back? And when it's all done, what difference is there, I should like to know, between a baby's nightshirt and the thing it wears in the daytime? Very likely, however, I'm the only one making myself ridiculous. I often do so, so I am informed, and I will therefore say no more upon this matter of clothes, except only that it would be of great convenience if some fashion were adopted and enabling you to tell a boy from a girl. Ha! That's rich. It's true, though, because back then you couldn't tell if it was a boy or a girl because they all wore just, like, white, just big white gowns as babies. That's what they all wore. And so many of them. I get exactly what he's saying. Because you've seen, like, we usually save them for, like, baptism or whatever. But no, they dress babies like that all the time. God, I barely wanted my kid in a onesie. Kind of used to pee all the time. I was constantly undressing. Um, At present, it is most awkward. Neither hair, dress, nor conversation affords the slightest clue, and you're left to guess, you know, boy or girl. It's amazing, because now, not just as babies, now when they're older, we're like, what are you? Uh, by some mysterious law of nature, you invariably guess wrong. Misgendered! And are thereby regarded by all the relatives and friends as a mixture of fool and knave. The enormity of alluding to a male baby is a she! Oh my goodness! being only equaled by the atrocity of referring to a female infant as he. Whatever sex the particular child in question happens not to belong to is considered as beneath contempt. And any mention of it is taken as a personal insult to the family. And as you value your fair name and do not attempt to get out of the difficulty big calling it an it. <laughs> there are various methods by which you may achieve ignominy and shame. Ignominy. Ignominy. That's a weird word. And shame. By murdering a large and respected family in cold blood and afterwards depositing their bodies in the water company's reservoir, you will gain much unpopularity in the neighborhood of your crime. And even robbing a church will get you cordially disliked, especially by the vicar. But if you desire to drain the dregs, drain to the dregs the fullest cup of scorn and hatred that a fellow human creature can pour out for you, let a young mother hear you call her dear baby it. Your best plan is to address the article as little angel. The noun angel being a common gender suits and suits both admirably and the epitaph is sure to be favorably received. Pet or beauty are useful for variety's sake, but angel is the term that brings you the greatest credit for sense and good feeling. The word should be preceded by a short giggle and accompanied by as much smile as possible. Oh, <laughs> What a little angel! Oh my god! <laughs> Aww. 
Yeah, like that. Mm-hmm. We've all done it. You've all seen that ugly baby. Don't even pretend like you haven't. You've seen that ugly baby. Here we go. This is my tangent. I'm going to end it here. You've seen ugly babies. Ugly babies exist. Out of everything in this book, this is probably the one that hits me the most. Everybody thinks their child is beautiful. At least that's what they say. You know if you have an ugly child. You may love them as if they're beautiful, but you know when they're ugly. You know it. You look at that child and go, damn. I have looked at children that people are like, oh my God, come look at my baby. Oh my God. Oh yeah. <gasps> You're like, oh my God, how beautiful. You got to quick. You got to recoup. You got to backpedal, turn that bitch around. You cannot falter when it comes to babies. You have to lie. You have to lie. I don't like to lie ever. But if you have an ugly baby, I'm going to lie to you. Oh, yes. I will try to minimize the lie. I'll be like, oh, my God. You must be so happy. Oh, so sweet. You must, oh, you must be so proud and love your, love your, what is it? Boy, so much. Yes, love your boy. That's, I was going for that. Very manly. But no, like, that's what you do. You... You look at them and you try to spin it in a way where you're not really lying, but you're trying to find the silver lining. But y'all have seen some ugly babies. I don't mean to be a bitch about it, but I'm just stating facts. There are some ugly babies. And you don't want to say it because you're just wondering where the ugly came from and you're really like looking at them going... Oh no, I know where it came from. Never mind. Like you it's especially hard when the mother is like gorgeous and she has a really ugly baby and you're like this is what you get for marrying for money. Like what the fuck? Um but yeah, no. I I've done it. I I faltered. <laughs> I've been like, "Oh my god. Oh, it's so good to see you." Oh, and you know that I'm like really trying because my voice goes really, really high. <laughs> like, oh my God. And I squeak and it's just. So, yeah. Still better than saying, wow, what an ugly baby. Oh my God. Did it hurt as much to look at them after as it did to push them out? Did they get stuck? Like, what happened? Like, you want to ask those things, but you can't because it's just rude. Just rude. And I don't mind, you know, maybe insensitive questions at times. But rude? No, I don't like rude. So I will pretend your child is really gorgeous. But you'll know. Oh, you can always tell when I pretend because I don't do it well. But <laughs> um Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this book. It's just a couple excerpts from it. And I figured this would be a lot more entertaining to you guys than me just reading it out. Because reading it out is boring and it's so not me. Hell, even when I read to my kindergartners, I would stop and go, do you believe he said that? Would you do that? Show of hands. Who would have done the same thing? Yeah, no, I didn't think so either. 
I miss doing that. That's part of the whole, like, I want you to stop and have a laugh with me. I'll get better. I promise. But for now, that's what you get. And this is, what's it called? The Idle Thoughts of an Idle Fellow. And we only went, like, 65% of the way through the book. I mean, they have some on eating and drinking and whatever. But maybe I'll do, like, a part two. I don't know. I think this is good for now. If you want to read it, you could always look it up. It's one of those um, free public domain books. So I hope you enjoyed this. I hope it puts you either in a good mood or puts you to sleep or something. I don't know. Either way, this is Shelly, your mouthy mama signing off and saying, I love you. I will be back with another kind of book. I just don't know which. And I will be reading just bits and pieces here and there to get you through most of it. Uh, I hope you're all doing well. And I will see you in the funny papers. Bye.